Hi, I'm Shreya Bakliwal and this is Women Who Build Podcast. How many of you are sipping onto your teas while listening to this episode? Did you know that India is the largest consumer of tea in the world? This is exactly the opportunity that Mayura Rao saw when she started Awesome to cater to health issues of a modern consumer. Mayura Rao is an engineer and a business major from the London Business School. After having worked in the corporate world of London all her life, she came back to her hometown Bangalore a few years ago just to start Awesome Teas. Now without further delay, I have Mayura for you. Hi Mayura, thanks for joining me today. Wow. wonderful way to spend a weekday evening speaking with you yeah i'm so glad to finally do this with you so mayura why don't you start with what really led you to start awesome right um i was actually trying to find a way to optimize an individual's performance right uh, what i mean by that is we're trying to be the best version of ourselves right be the best most awesome versions and for us to do that we kind of have to think about our whole health in perspective so what i mean by that is uh, you've got to think about it as body mind and soul and the three basically have to connect with each other for us to be our most optimum at any point um so that's kind of how i uh, kind of landed on awesome uh, as a product and as a journey to try and find a way to bring in products that are steeped in tradition but which have a functional aspect to it especially nutrition wise and to basically find a way to look at interceptive medicine so that we're able to tackle some of our challenges or health challenges that we face especially as part of our day to day lives before it reaches clinical stages in manners or in products that we are able to ubiquitously fit into our lives Right and I know that you were a management consultant right out of LBS um so why don't you tell me more about your journey of corporate to startup I think this is one of those uh, those classic moments right I remember interviewing for a uh, a job at BCG and I'm sitting there and I was trying to convince somebody else of uh of how I would help deliver their vision and I had this one epiphany moment where I said hey instead of helping or delivering other people's visions maybe there's an opportunity here for me to create my own vision and find a way to deliver it um but of course i didn't start my entrepreneurial journey immediately after that but uh, 3 years after management consulting um i was tired of solving other people's problems i decided to start a few of my own and try and find a way to solve them so mm. i moved back from london to bangalore i'd never worked in india before uh so my first uh foray was to try and understand how business actually works here because it's not the same when you come on a two week vacation to uh, Bangalore to look up family and friends and i was more curious about entrepreneurial ventures instead of being fully prepared for it so my journey was was more stumbling and a lot of like picking myself up as i have found my way through or uh, you know found my way in order to be an entrepreneur as such Yeah and I completely agree with you on uh, delivering on your own vision rather than delivering on others. Uh so you also mentioned in the beginning of the episode that you wanted to create a product that made people feel really good about themselves and at the same time you were also trying to um you know serve a functionality. So tell me why tea? 
And what are the different kinds of teas that uh, Awesome sells? looking at beverages are awesome with the primary idea that uh, you know teas is the second most consumed beverage in the world so we if you think about what has more share of throat teas consume about 23% of your share of throat which means it's is a second most uh, widely consumed beverage uh, in the world so we looked at you know how do we look at wellness nutrition how do we think about bringing holistic health in a format like tea right so in that process we started looking at what are the different kinds of teas that we could we could perhaps bring to the consumer uh, especially in a country that is heavily determined or defined by chai which is our bread and butter without which we don't even move like india runs on chai like they say um then we, essentially we look at teas in three different formats we look at them in uh, things that actually have caffeine in them. So uh, you you you've got green teas, you've got white teas, etc. We do a very small portion of selective black teas, right? And then you've got what we call tisans. These are essentially anything that doesn't contain caffeine. So these are fruits, herbs, spices, botanicals, uh, flowers that we essentially put together in a nice package that we then consume which technically comes under the concept of herbal teas that's what a tisane is tisane is a french word to determine anything that is a plant matter which is consumed hot as a beverage yeah and how big is the indian market for the different kinds of teas that you sell sure so when you look at the market in general right the bird's eye view basically will give you numbers as big as like 23 22000 crores is what the indian uh, retail consumption market is this uh, goes anywhere from about two rupees cutting chai that you might be finding outside your uh, office all the way down to like a 250 rupees a cup in a five-star hotel. Yeah. So 95% of tea that's consumed in India is primarily black. And the other 5% uh, comes from uh, green teas, which are primarily consumed uh, for health objectives uh, as well as for its taste and its appreciation. But today, there's like vast amount of uh, education and awareness built on the fact that green teas actually do something for you, apart from just having a great drinking experience. So there's, it's actually the category that's growing the fastest in a country like India. And now that you have defined your category, how does one define his or her target group? <laughs> so uh, our consumer stuff actually come in three uh Three lovely packaged formats in some way. We've got uh, the youngsters between about 20 to 25 who primarily uh, come to Awesome for the drinking experience. They're the ones who love to experience a new tisane, uh, have a beautiful looking uh, blue cup of tea from a blue tea chamomile. So these are experiential drinkers that come for the love of the beverage. The health objectives, is, it tends to be secondary. We call them our health neophytes. Then we've got the heartland, which is our 25 to about 35-year-old age group, where typically, uh, you know, you've started to think about health a little more. You're not able to recover from binge drinking the previous night. You know, the hangovers get worse as you into your early 30s. And now you're actively thinking about health and compensating for lifestyle. These are the guys where the... Um, primary objective tends to be health for purchase. 
And then you've got the 35 to about 45 age group that we also serve, where these are well-heeled, well-traveled, they understand their taste profiles. These are the no-nonsense crowd. They just want a product that helps manage a particular solution or a, a sorry, the particular solution to help manage a particular problem that they're facing, uh, whether it be anything from managing blood sugar levels, uh, de-stressing at night before going to sleep, um, or they're looking for options to manage things like heart problems or blood pressure, or simple things like, you know, I want to lose some weight, or these are my health objectives that this particular team is helping me achieve. So uh, those are the kind of three buckets that uh, typically we see our consumers coming out of. It's an interesting way to kind of, uh, you know, divide your consumer or your target group into several segments and then think about the product accordingly. So tell me when you were building out your MVP, how did you go about it and how can consumer brands really think about building an MVP? So when you think about MVP, you've got to think about it from the consumer perspective. You've got two ways to think about it. One, you can build it on top of what we call habits that are existing today, right? We call it habit stacking. Like you stack one habit on top of the other, it's easier to do. For instance, if you like to read before you go to bed, then it's about educating them about while you're reading, why don't you consume this cup of tea which will help you sleep better at night. So habit stacking was one way for us to think about MVP. The other way that we also thought about it is if you require somebody to make a change or to make a small change in habits, you've got to make sure that the barrier to jump shouldn't be very high because then the explanation about why this versus something else requires you to break existing habits. So those are the two things that we were trying to bear in mind as to how do we make it accessible, how do we make it easy for consumer to understand, and how do we make sure that it is not something that they will do as a one-off, but we need to build stickiness into it. And when you tested out this MVP, what were the learnings that you had and, you know, how did you take your next steps accordingly? So one of the interesting things I found in, uh, found about Indian markets, right, it is we all live in little pockets of our own environments and culture. If you look at geography, Delhi is very different to Bangalore. People are different. The way we look at uh, products are different. Our consumption patterns are different. But so when we test an MVP, what we were thinking about is would the same purchase considerations remain? Should they live in Bombay versus Bangalore? What we found was about 60 to 70% of the purchase considerations, irrespective of geography, remain the same. It was wow. the top, like the creamy layer on top that you had to start thinking about mm. localizing. It could be a language localization. It could be a taste localization. There were just those final points that you had to finesse. But essentially, instead of cutting it via geography, we actually cut it through classes. We find that the uh, middle, middle class and upwards in most of these cities tend to have the same purchase considerations, especially when it comes to batans. And it comes to understanding purchase reasons. So we started looking at those more in depth. When we started um, figuring out which geography might work for us, we started with Bangalore. Of course, you know we're, we're Bangalore-based, and it was easy to get access to these consumers. When you quickly test out products and uh, routes to market that work here, we were able to quickly replicate it from a test perspective in other cities and 
and you know check whether our hypothesis remain the same in some cities such as like pune we failed in our hypothesis when it came to purchase considerations whereas in a bigger city like a tier 1 city in delhi we fared much better and it was then trying to slice them out to say in which city where do you have the affordable middle class where do you have the dispensable uh, upper middle class where they're looking for avenues to make these kind of purchases and that kind of helps you bring together a holistic mvp together in a in a country where the geographies are so different from each other right so tell me how does that impact your distribution strategy so there's uh, there's one thing that we can say about india right uh, because of these kind of pockets it feels easy enough to start up but it's harder to scale as a result of these kind of differentiated pockets unlike the west where it's harder to start up but easier to scale because the masses are homogeneous or the population is homogeneous and our population is not homogeneous the opportunity there remains in where you can deliver more personalized approaches so with that in mind we you know you would say perhaps retail is a better way to do it because you're you're able to cater to a local audience but if you look at fundamentally the way people are purchasing certain products especially in our health journeys we find that the consumer requires a little bit more hand holding and need a little bit more time to read what is the product actually going to do for me and that format doesn't lend itself in retail if you i mean next time you're in a retail store think about the different products that are being shown to you in an aisle you perhaps will pick the product that you're most comfortable with or you associate yourself more with because there's just no time to read through all the back of the labels read all the claims figure out what's good for you therefore when we have non homogeneous uh, populations like this a, a combination of both actually should work i'm i'm talking about pre covid time right you you yeah. need to have brand building that's happening online where you're doing a lot of the consumer education and then allowing the consumer whether they want to buy online or offline and depending on the product that we were trying to do one thing we quickly realized um when we were doing our routes to market uh, testing is our consumers actually did not react well in retail because there was just too much to understand and take in but what we saw instead was our consumers were reading a lot more spending a lot of time on our product pages and therefore making a purchase online and driving higher value for themselves and for us as a business therefore retail never lent itself naturally to us in that instance in our current times what we've seen is retail has automatically moved on from a brick and mortar store to a storefront on your phone or your ipad and that's where the conversation now is happening with our consumers yeah and as you rightly suggested right that uh, online is one channel through which you can create a lot of awareness around ingredients or uh, maybe health benefits that uh, one can gain from tea or anything else so tell me how does a brand like yours really differentiate itself now that uh, there are so many tea brands coming up so we think about uh, our defensibility in in two ways one is product itself right it's not about having a 1x better or a 2x better product because it makes it harder for these uh, for harder for consumers to decide which brand they have to go after right and then the 
decision then comes down purely on price. So if you don't want to operate and you then have to have a product that's at least 5x or 10x better than your competitor so that you're able to tell a differentiated story. In our case, for example, we've started a line where um, we have worked with a medical unit and co-created products with doctors uh, by adding nutraceutical products into our teas by bringing in efficacy-based claims onto our products, which can which our competitors are not doing in the regular tea category. So it's about stepping away from generics that are easily replaceable and going after something very specific. So that product is a is a really great mode to have. The second, of course, is what we're all trying to do is, is about building our brand and the brand story. Um, mm. Brand is one of these intangible things that... Um, you know, it's it's harder to define from day one, but it's something that you live and breathe as you build the brand together. For example, there are a couple of things that make us stand apart. We um, we believe in transparency as a brand, so it uh, we talk very directly to our consumers, especially if, you know after they receive the product in terms of what's gone in, what is the pricing we have paid to procure the products. For example. Uh, you know, 55% of the MRP has gone into procuring the raw materials, the recyclable packaging. So a lot of quality checks have gone in to make sure that the best product is kind of brought to the consumer. So one, um, from a brand story, right, we're starting to build these tentacles that the consumers really care about. The second one is, uh, you know, we are a mostly women-led organization. So each product that goes out to our consumer have a personal story by the person who has packed it. We run educational programs with our manufacturing team, which is mainly made up of unskilled labor, who we train in writing, reading skills, some basic management skills, some computer skills, so that they have life skills that they can take on should they choose to progress further in their lives outside of awesome. And so these kind of stories um, help us stand apart from a brand perspective where you're starting to generate brand love from your consumers. So when in, when consumers look at us, they see two different things actually. So one that specifically stands out are the differentiated products that we are creating. And second, something that they can empathize with and relate to, which is the brand story. Yeah, and I find the entire transparency theme very interesting and uh, seems like it is springing out across other sectors as well. So just last week, I was speaking to Tanvi Bhikchandani, who runs uh, Tamarind Chutney, which is a sustainable clothing brand here in India. And she was also telling me how she has started to give out details on where the raw material is coming from or who is kind of, you know, making the um, apparel or even packaging the apparel. So I feel uh, that is very interesting. But one thing that I would love to hear from you is that, you know, how long do you think consumers will take to really um, understand the value of uh, this information, right? Uh, so for example, for me, something like, uh, you know, where where the raw material is getting sourced from or who is really uh, making my product is uh, an information which is very, very important to me. And I would love to have that kind of information. But for someone like my mom, I don't think uh, that will be her prime consideration. So uh, objectives will never be aligned especially with the consumer, right? It's the part of part of the story that you're selling and hopefully you're attracting consumers who resonate and care about the same story. But that doesn't always have a 100% overlap. You will still have to serve people 
who have come to you for a specific reason that's why um, you know having two differentiators always helps just having a brand differentiator doesn't help especially if you're trying to scale because as the brand becomes more accessible and maybe going after the masses to your point there is a certain element that people care about but is that enough to make a purchase i would say maybe not but it's enough to perhaps keep the consumer within your ecosystem so that you can so that they stay loyal as mm-hmm. such so yeah. the product really makes a huge difference in that sense right unless you're offering a product that really solves the consumer's problem all of the other nice to haves don't really come into the purchase decision right but what we find is even if they were not part of the initial purchase decision all of these little touch points that we offer have had a longer term impact for our consumer base they may not acknowledge it at the start but there is a when they come back to us to buy again there is a an acknowledgement of something good that has happened so there's a motto that we live by at Austin it's about feel good and do good right nobody will do good if it doesn't make them feel good or if it doesn't have anything to do with them individually see we're all uh, humans are by nature selfish as creatures and right if it doesn't do anything for me personally i'm not interested about doing good in general talking about feel good right um i want to know how awesome is really taking care of uh, catering to an indian consumer's palate right since uh, it's completely different and i would say uh, at this point of time it is not quite evolved for the mass markets so i i really want to know how is it that you are doing it so that you know our listeners out there can really take inspiration if they want to start out in the food and beverage industry um so when we thought about this we said hey you know if you're trying to change a habit right you're trying to jump a hoop while you're trying to jump a hoop it will be easier to keep some things familiar rather than making two hoops happen which is an unfamiliar taste as well as an you know making a change of habit so we said we'll go after habits that are uh, if you're going to ask them to change from one cup of chai to one cup of our blend we want to keep tastes that are that are well loved so indian tastes uh, you know we love having something with a with a sweet aftertaste or spicy aftertaste work really well for us so we design a lot of our blends using natural ingredients to help meet those uh, taste profiles which means the when the tastes are familiar it's easier to adapt yourself to a new beverage rather than you know forcing yourself to like something just because you know you've bought it or you've read about why it's good for you and then your willpower needs to come into play to make you that you know make that change kind of happen yeah and now talking more on the indian consumer uh, we all know that india is the largest tea consumer in the world so if i were to talk about the trends that exist in the world right now or the kinds of teas that are available all across the world um is it safe to say that all of this is actually driven by the likes of uh, indian consumers i would say yes and no right uh, india is the second largest uh, exporter of tea so after china so this is pretty much the mothership of tea exports and which drive a lot of the tea understanding and appreciation in the west so uh, there are two trends actually funnily enough happening you've got the western audience moving towards appreciating uh, indian teas accessing masala chai it's one of the most preferred uh, tastes because they're now you know loving the whole taste of spice etc 
so like indian teas are doing superbly well in the west because they are now finding some of these taste profiles is very interesting and appealing india what's happening is we've we've come from this kind of culturally ingrained uh, taste profile what we are now looking for is is like more is broadening up our taste profiles to allow and accept newer taste profiles so they're actually feeding off each other if you mm-hmm. look at the growth of uh, alternate teas so alternate to black so whether you're looking at uh, green teas or herbal teas we are growing in double digits over the last kind of 5 years in these two categories which is what the west has been doing for a long time but if you look at the western categories in terms of appreciation of indian tea it has grown amazingly well over the last kind of 3 to 4 years where access to indian markets have become easier in the west and uh, i personally seen the rise of like masala chai in the west right earlier it was an unheard of thing but today most people like and or love a chai whether it's a starbucks or uh, whether it is buying it off the shelf and making it at home it's become hugely popular yeah and now when i come to think of it i totally remember how i used to have chai lattes in the us huh. uh so now coming to team building i know that uh, most of your employees are women so tell me what makes women different <laughs> you know um i find women working at different levels operating quite uniquely in that sense when when you look at corporates women operate in a different manner in our startups you know when you're bringing in women at very different levels we find like certain things that stand out very uniquely to our tribe one is you know we work well in teams especially when you overcome the the usual hurdles of team building or team working women make great teammates they are collaborative they are very supportive and if you get the right team mix there's no competition so nobody is working out of jealousy they're all working towards a common objective the other thing that we uh, that i love about having a, a mostly women led team is there's a lot of empathy that goes around if somebody is unable to figure out a way to manage something or achieve a target or even if you're for for example not feeling your 100% in the day somebody else is there to pick up your slack or another team member steps in to help you figure that out and finally uh, i find that there's also a, a, a lot of love within the team especially aimed towards me because they they don't look at it as hey i come in clock my hours collect my salary and go away they would love to get involved in anything and everything we've just done a, an office move and my team was willing to like save me 1500 rupees by unbolting all the the cabinets themselves um which wouldn't have moved the needle for me but it actually uh, it touched me quite a bit that they were willing to think about every rupee that i was having to spend on an office move and where they could contribute instead and do the job themselves even though they had no idea how to hold a spanner <laughs> so empathy and love cool uh, now let's move on to the funding strategy i know that you bootstrapped your business uh, you started off your business with 10 lakhs in your pocket So tell me what are the pros and cons of uh, a company that's bootstrapped. So um 
the pro of course is that you are the key decision maker right you've got nobody overlooking you you can take the decision that you think is the right one for you and you can go for it especially if you have some money to back you yeah um i would say uh, bootstrapping gives you freedom which probably fundraising doesn't but what fundraising gives you is access which bootstrapping doesn't so when you look at uh, bootstrapping you've got to think about at what stage you're intending to do and what's the ultimate objective right um if you want to build a business at your pace with your vision in mind and you are willing to sacrifice quick growth for long term longevity and having freedom of expression of your vision then bootstrapping is a great way to do it because you can fiddle around do enough r&d you can test your hypothesis but it takes a little while for you to get there because you may not have the financial resources or even the access to people who can help you shape that faster mm. fundraising gives you a uh, different pros and cons um than bootstrapping of course uh, fundraising gives you access not just to money but to resources to people to consultants who can help you scale faster who can help you avoid mistakes that bootstrapping usually wouldn't um but it also comes with a boss on top of you where you you signed up to certain objectives uh, you've put together your business plan if you are not delivering to that the, the stress can be extremely tremendous so um i chose to bootstrap because i wanted to make mistakes on my own time and with money of my own back and i wanted to do it without the pressure of having to deliver from day one until we hit that mvp yeah so uh well but also when you're bootstrapping then the other financial thing you think about faster you'll think about how do i break even faster how do i get to profitability how do i make every money that i spend or every penny that i put behind an activity actually has the roi that i set it out for hmm. because you don't have a lot of room to wiggle hmm. and unfortunately you also don't have a lot of room to make too many mistakes Yeah I guess the speed of uh, being profitable um is something that uh, is one of the factors while you are bootstrapped so interesting insights there uh, I want to know that uh, you also mentioned that in uh, absence of venture funding you do not have access to the best human resources and human resources are uh, so vital when uh, you are just starting up so tell me in absence of venture funding how does one get quality human resources right um it it's actually harder than people would imagine and it requires one to be more pliable while asking for help for example uh, let's let's talk about mentors right i have found that it requires you to look through your address book or your linkedin contacts lot more rigorously by saying hey who are the mentors i want how can i get a warm connect to them and i found mentors by just asking people to make introductions for me uh over and over again and then try and see you know if they would be willing to have a conversation you've got to think about it from the mentor's perspective as well right they are also thinking about who do they want to mentor and what's in it for them in some way uh to see whether their their advice or their ideas have a way to see light because mentors a good mentor doesn't have any other objective apart from your progress and to meet to help you achieve your objective but if you don't have the right resources to do that the mentors also find like you know they're hitting their head against the the wall in some way and it's not moving anywhere 
So access to mentors for me required a lot of cold and hot introductions to happen. In the absence of somebody else making that introduction. When it comes to team hiring without that much money in the bank, uh, it requires you to really sell them on your vision and your product. It, it requires you to be passionate. It requires you to, you're actually asking somebody to take a pay cut to work with you. And the only way you can do that is by offering something that's missing from their current, current work environments. So for example, I had one person who I successfully got him to come and join us with the idea that, you know, hey, there's, there's much bigger pie that we're building and, you know, come and join in, in the journey. You be an, be an entrepreneur with us. Right? There is a lot of freedom and space for you to explore, for you to help co-build a product. And there has to be something in there that excites the other person to come and join you in a stage where, you know, you're also starting up, you're also like figuring it out and you're, you're making things happen as you're going along without uh, a lot of enticement of money. So people, you need to find the right people who are also excited by the same things that um, you were excited with when you started off. Otherwise, it doesn't work. Now a bit on Awesome's vision. What exactly is your vision and how do you measure if you are in line with your vision? So our vision is about optimizing our consumer's performance. And, and we're doing that with uh, creating products that help them meet their or to be their best version of themselves. And the way we track them is, is through a multiple different ways. So uh, for us, you know, setting up a great vision but not finding a way to deliver it is, is kind of a, a plot gone wrong, right? Uh, we regularly look at connecting back with the consumer. See, at the end of the day, we're in a we're in a product category where it's not about acquiring that consumer and like letting go. It's about finding that consumer, bringing them into our environment, and keep getting them to stay within that environment. So, in our tea business, it is about getting them to either explore other different teas or to become habitual consumption com- consumers of the particular tea brand that they have or the uh, the SKU that they have chosen. So in order for us to measure that, we then have to go back to basics, right? How are we really impacting our consumers day to day? So we go back to ask that question pretty often. And we look at that in the sense of, um, are we meeting the objective that we've set out to be? So for example, if we have a a tea that helps you manage your stress, then it's about going back to the consumer every couple of weeks and finding out how far are we from achieving that objective for that consumer. And we do that collectively through marketing studies, through consumer calls, uh, through surveys, essentially to gather all that data and to try and understand what made them purchase and is it the same vision that we are trying to achieve as a result of that. So if the consumer says, hey, you know, I, I, I liked it, it was great, but, you know, it didn't do anything for me, then we have to go back. To, and, and if a lot of consumers have to say the same thing, then we've kind of got to go back and say, hey, how, how the heck are we optimizing performance if they're not able to meet that primary objective for this consumer? So that's constantly what we're reiterating from a vision perspective, because the vision, you know, is, is not a sentence we write on a piece of book. It's something that has to be lived through. And it's a living creature that we have to nurture and grow on a daily basis and the only person who can help you do that is your consumer and we have to keep and i keep them very close to our hearts so 
I do a lot of like uh, consumer studies myself, do a lot of review calls, call them up, find out, you know, why they're purchasing it, what is it doing for them? And as a result, what can we do better in order to help them achieve their goal? Yeah, and what are some hard metrics that you track that uh, tell you that uh, the consumer is probably aligned with your vision and is coming back to you? So I think uh, these come down to our regular marketing metrics, right? So one metric that we obviously track is repeat rates. How often are these people coming back to replenish? A box of tea should take you no more than 30 days. So are they coming back, say, even within a six-week cycle to buy another box? So one uh, easy metric to track is how often are they coming back? So what your repeat rates are. The other method that we look at is if they used to come to buy one box, are they continuing now to add more boxes of the same category or are they actually graduating further up the price points? Are they starting to explore? A big uh, tracker for us is to say, hey, a consumer has been with us for about six months and he's tried like at least four or five different products, which means they are uh, likely to be loyal to our brand. What they're now doing is exploring their way through our product categories, which is a good sign, which means there is interest, there is our product market fit has been met. And now it's about finding or exploring different products that might help suit them, either from a taste profile or a health objective. The other thing that we look at is, of course, um, order size, right? How big is that basket growing over time? So what is our lifetime value that we are extracting from this consumer? It's a great indication of, um, of, of things like, you know, are these consumers coming back because they know the brand and therefore they find value and are coming to buy or are we having to reacquire these consumers each time? So the, which leads to the fourth trigger, uh, fourth kind of thing that we track is about brand recall. Do they even remember who we are? So when we do uh, like, you know, surveys which, uh, where we don't introduce ourselves, we might actually put a few brands out there to try and see if these guys even recall us because they've bought from us before. Brand recall is a great way to figure out whether there is any, uh, whether you've made any traction or whether you've made any headway with your consumer. And if they're able to quote us in the, in like the first few competitor names that they've thrown out in terms of what they use, we've known we've, we've kind of hit the mark with them. Yeah, that's an interesting way to think about it. I think uh, I was always focused on, uh, you know, the number of repeats and also if they are trying out new categories and I never thought about it uh, from this perspective. So great insight there. Thank you. And uh, now just getting to, uh, you know, the personal side um, of uh, becoming an entrepreneur. Uh, would uh, love to know how has becoming an entrepreneur really changed the way you view life? Uh, what have your learnings been and uh, how do you really implement those learnings in your daily behavior? You mean apart from the gray hair that I have to mask now, <laughs> thanks to entrepreneurial adventures? <laughs> um, I think for me, there have been like three solid things that have come through actually. One is, I think when we're in corporate world, right, um, you... Or rather, let me put it this way. When you're earlier in your career, the steps are very clear. You've graduated college. You have got a job. Now the thing is about how do you get your next promotion? Maybe go to B school, whatever. The the path is kind of laid out in some manner till you hit about 32 to 35. And there are no, um, there's no need to find another way to manage it. But what happens when you shift to entrepreneurial ventures is that the path ahead is not so cleanly structured. So you're now dealing with a lot of 
unstructured thinking and action so my biggest learning is about failure and how okay it is so failure is okay is something that nobody tells you before you uh, pick up uh, you know doing your own thing or like starting a new venture um it's funny enough like you know i went to business school and how little they talk about failure as such or how little they talk about uh, risk in taking on a venture of your own um and the risk of failure is really high but nobody actually talks too much about it and especially culturally for us we made it feel like failure is is the worst thing that can happen to you unfortunately it is not the worst thing that can happen to you and failure is okay and if anybody tells you otherwise then they haven't been an entrepreneur in their life at all so that was my one learning two i think um how quickly you can bounce back is something that you're truly tested when you're doing something on your own because the motivation doesn't is not your employer is not the salary it's not some fancy holiday that you can go with your paid vacation it really has to be something that's far more deeper and ingrained in you which means when you have setbacks bouncing back can be harder because the motivations are different and the carrots that are dangling in front of you are not the same when you're in a corporate world the other third thing is about reading people i think um, whether you're trying to convince your consumer to buy a product or whether you're trying to get an investor to invest in your idea one thing i've learned really quickly is how to size people up is there interest or wh- where have i lost them in the journey or is there is are they not the right person for me um because the risk of getting a wrong person can be quite high for example if you get the wrong investor on board it it can completely derail what you're trying to do so reading and sizing up people is something that i haven't learned before when um i was working in a corporate world as such i think in entrepreneurial world you you quickly figure out whether your plumber is telling you the truth in terms of fixing your office toilet all the way down to whether it's the right investor for you and now mayura uh, when you started out i know that you created a personal board of directors so tell me how does one find these directors i the way i chose my personal board of directors uh, essentially were people who i respected whose advice i trusted and who i knew would not just pat me on the back even though they knew it was not the right thing so uh, not all friends fit that criteria because nobody wants to offend you i have found mentors sitting on that uh, board of directors for me who basically have nothing to do with me personally but are only there to help me achieve my professional goals um even there could be colleagues who you basically value whose judgment or whose opinions you value quite a lot and who you know won't will give you a no nonsense response when you need one so i would say maybe family and and really close friends unless you are unless you find them really objective don't really make the cut because you need somebody to be really ruthless when they're sitting on your personal board of directors because they're literally mirrors for you they're telling you things you don't want to tell yourself mayura one last question tell me what message do you have for all the women founders out there i would say don't be afraid I think women tend to overthink things a lot. Be willing to take a risk and just jump in. The ride is going to be phenomenal. It's not going to be easy, but you will have a story to tell at the end of it. The last thing I'd probably say is, you know, look at Kanye West. If he thinks he can become the president of the United States, what are we all waiting for? 
we just need to take more chances in our lives and just jump in awesome that was a great example mayura and i'm sure our listeners will be very much motivated now okay thank you so much for your time my pleasure thank you shreya now i love how detail oriented and insightful mayura is about the tea or the general beverage industry if you are a food and beverage entrepreneur willing to be mentored by mayura write to me at the email id provided in the description if you like today's episode do not forget to subscribe to the women who build podcast on apple podcast